We're continuing the 1 Kings series uh, today. So today's sermon passage follows 1 Kings 18, where the prophet Elijah confronted the people of Israel on Mount Carmel. Um, You may well remember. And he challenged them to make up their mind between God and the pagan idol Baal and go and choose only the one true God. So please turn to 1 Kings 19, or the passage should be up on the screen behind me. So 1 Kings 19, I'll give you a moment to find it. 1 Kings 19, starting from verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel that all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went into went in the strength of that food, forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out. And stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. They seek my life to take it away. And and the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. 
and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint, anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall uh, Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shephat, who was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and went after Elijah, and assisted him. Well, let's think about what that passage means. I want to start out talking about, I want my phone, by the way. (laughs) Why? Because there's a timer on here, and it tells me if I'm going on too long, and you'll be glad for that. Right. I I want to start out talking about a man called Dr. Byung Cato. Dr. Cato was a gifted Bible teacher and Christian leader in Nigeria around the the, the mid-1960s and into the mid-1970s. And he was a leader in in the face of a culture that followed other religions and a culture that would also mix Christianity with those other religions. And it was very hard for him as one of the people of that culture to push back against that stuff. He he was a man who spoke with conviction that that, uh, Christ and Christ alone is the way to God. Byung came to know Jesus when he was 12 years old through the mission school that he went to, the SIM mission school. He went on to earn a doctorate in theology, which he he graduated with that in 1974. He was known for giving effective Christian leadership in Africa, which is so critical because many in Africa have a weak understanding of the gospel. Kerry and I, when, when we were still in Cape Town, which is where we're from, we had a house and a granny flat as part of that house, and a Ghanaian couple were living in that granny flat. And we would often be in conversation with one another. They came for dinner. And the, the, the husband told us one time that the, the reach of the gospel in Africa is like a river a mile wide. You've probably heard this expression, a mile wide. You think it's everywhere. The trouble is this river is an inch deep. When I learned about Dr. Cato in African church history, I felt such great affection for this man because of his clear stand for Jesus. He's a dear brother. But the terribly sad thing about our brother, Dr. Byung Cato, is that in December 1975, he drowned in the ocean while he was on holiday with his family. 
He was only 39. He was just starting. And when I read about that as a, as a Bible college student, I just said, why? Why, Lord? Why, when Africa is so spiritually needy, when this man is so, so necessary, why did you take him away? Why? It just seems so wrong. And certainly thinking as a human, I would have thought that God would preserve such a good man for the good that he was, he was doing. There are many times in the lives of every Christian when we wonder, what is God doing? Why, for instance, when we need pastors in Perth, we, there's so much to do in this city and reaching this lost city. Why then, when we need people, was a good man like Mike Horgan struck down with cancer last, last year? I'm so out of what year is what. He was, he was a pastor with great gifts at St. Matthew's in Shenton Park. Why, when we are striving to put gospel plans into place, are we hit by like real great difficulties that then distract us from giving our attention to those things? And instead, we have to put our time and energy into, into those difficulties. Why, why all this? Surely, Lord, the gospel going out and full attention on that is the thing. Well, chapter 19 begins with... Elijah disillusioned. In verse 3, he's afraid, and he runs for his life. And he runs far. He runs all the way down to Beersheba. Now, if you look on the map, I don't know if you can see it, but it's a long way from where he was when he had the great victory on Mount Carmel. It's a long way all the way down south to Beersheba. Beersheba is, is far away from Israel, it's deep into the southern kingdom of Judah, and it's deep in. So he's gone very far. Why is he running after the great victory that he's just had? The people had all seen on Mount Carmel the fire that fell from heaven, and that fire came just from a simple prayer that Elijah prayed to God. And after the fire fell from heaven and proved who the true God is, the people that were all gathered there, the people of Israel, fell on their faces. And back in chapter 18 and verse 39, we read there that the people said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so, Elijah, what is there to be afraid of? Why have you run? Elijah, you have won. You have the people on your side. The Lord, he is God. Well, perhaps not. Because there is Queen Jezebel, the wicked wife of King Ahab, so wicked that she did not repent of her Baal worship after her husband came and told her about the plain evidence that they had all seen that the Lord is God. This hard-hearted woman wasn't moved by the truth at all. And so we read in chapter 19, verses 1 to 2, we read this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. That's where the prophets of Baal, the, 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 the liars, the false teachers, that's how they ended up after it was shown who the true God is, this God that they dishonored. 
Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. It's so ridiculous, isn't it? So may the gods, they've just been proven to not be true. Nevertheless, so may the gods do to me. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, Ahab is weak. This woman takes charge and she takes charge in declaring what must happen to Elijah. It's all wrong. It should have been that the great victory on Mount Carmel sorted everything out. Ahab saw it. And he's the king. So he's the one who's got the authority under God. The people saw it. They all said, the Lord, he is God. But in a flash, this one woman, because of this one woman, Elijah has gone from great success on the top of Mount Carmel to now being under a broom tree in the wilderness. A disillusioned man. This woman is effective. She has already killed so many of the Lord's prophets. She clearly has charge. She has power. She has sway over people. Just the other day, Elijah said this prayer in front of them all. Oh, Lord, this is in chapter 18, verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. And after God answered with fire, he would have thought that the next thing, Elijah would have thought the next thing would be the rebuilding of the nation. As the people realize who the true God is, as they turn back, back to the Lord from their evil idolatry. See, that's reasonable for Elijah to think, right, now we're on track. Now they're rebuilding. But shockingly, that is not what has happened. And now he's alone in the middle of nowhere under a broom tree. And later in verse 10, he will tell the Lord that they seek my life to take it away. It's not just Jezebel, it's them. There's no one on his side, it seems. Jezebel has such power and she's quickly turned the people against Elijah. And so Elijah has given up. This is clear that he's given up because he asks God in verse 4, have a look at verse 4, he asks God that he might die. He says, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. What does he mean when he says no better than his father's? I think it could be that he's thinking of the many rejected prophets that we read about throughout Israel's idolatrous history. And I think he's saying, Lord, I'm just another failed prophet. Nothing's been achieved. And so he asks the Lord to take him. What's the point of carrying on? And so in verse 5, he goes to sleep under that broom tree, probably expecting to never ever wake up again, to die in his sleep as the Lord answers his prayer. You know, sometimes we come to that point where we feel that nothing is going right. We feel that maybe God has abandoned us or we're just not on track with, with God. And so we wonder, what's the point of it all? 
What's the point of our lives? Think of Moses. Moses felt that way in Numbers chapter 11. This is after the people, that he's leading this people, this, this miraculously out of the slavery they were in in Egypt. And he's leading them to the promised land. And they've seen so many miracles. And yet these people complain and they moan and they burden him. And so in Numbers 11 verse 14, he's had enough and he says this to God. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Then he says in verse 15, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. And this is Moses. He's been seeing all these powerful displays of God. And he's saying, what's the point? He feels like, let's, let's give up. Now, feeling despondent is a very real issue for many pastors, a man called Ben Johnston is a Presbyterian pastor from America who's been living and serving in Perth for quite some time, certainly the last 10 years or so at Subi Church of Christ. And now that he's finished there, he has started a ministry called Spero, S-P-E-R-O. And this, what I'm going to read to you now, comes off the website for Spero. In the 21st century church, many gospel workers are discouraged disillusioned, and on the brink of burnout. Sparrow Ministries, which is Latin for I hope, exists to address the needs of pastors and Christian leaders for spiritual care and personalized ministry training. Ben was in church, I think, two weeks ago. He was here. Um, Him and his wife, Sherry, are now attending our Vic Park Church and getting involved there. And he says the the give-up rate of pastors is very high. And it's a problem because we want to train pastors and see them go into ministry so more and more churches are planted. But if they're giving up, then you're you're just not getting traction. Well, Elijah wants to give up. Elijah is discouraged. And in wanting to die, I don't think he's suicidal, I just think he's saying, well, what's the point? There's nothing more for me to do. It's not working. But the Lord does not think this. Elijah awakens because an angel has touched him. He has not been taken out of this world. Clearly, the answer to his prayer is no. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take your life. Instead of giving him death... God gives him life because as he wakes up, right there near him is food and water. And then we see God prepares him for a journey. It's a very long journey. It's going to take 40 days and 40 nights. What the Lord is saying to this man is, I am still working with you, Elijah. Your your time has not yet come. And this journey is to a very special place. It's to Horeb, Mount Horeb which is another name for Mount Sinai. Now that you know God is sending him to Mount Sinai, that should raise the suspense levels of a Bible reader. You should scratch your head and go, why there? What is God up to? Why is he taking him there? Because you see, Mount Sinai is where it all started. This is where God first made his covenant promises to Israel When the people, led by Moses, 
were established. They're at the foot of that mountain. They were established as a nation. It was there with all kinds of displays of power that God told them that he would be their God and they would be his people, his special people on this earth. And there they were told that they would be a light to the rest of the world, that through them salvation would come to the rest of the world. But now in Elijah's experience, with everything that's gone, gone sour, the people of God are nothing like that. They do not behave like the people of God. They are not a light to the world. They are so deeply evil that even with profound evidence from heaven showing that the Lord is God, they choose to rebel. And so it looks like everything that was begun at Sinai has just fizzled away to nothing. And so has God changed his mind? Is this covenant plan going to work out? Is God going to carry on with it? That's where Elijah's at. He's disillusioned. But God takes Elijah back to the place where it all began. And there are so many echoes in Elijah's experience that echo the Sinai days of Moses. Here's an example. The people back then were also quite evil. After they had just heard God in power with, with fire and smoke and, and trembling ground, and after that, that experience hearing God and, and the covenant being cut, the next thing is when Moses goes up the mountain, you know, remember what those people did? They turned to idolatry. And that's when they made the golden calf. And they bowed down to that. With Elijah on Mount Carmel, they bowed and they declared, the Lord, he is God. But then in a flash, they're back to idolatry. What is God up to? Why has he brought Elijah back to the place where it all began for Israel? We carry on with the story. Elijah comes to a cave on Horeb. Could this be the cleft in the rock where Moses saw something of God's glory, which was a great encouragement to Moses? Is Elijah there? Has God brought him there to give him a boost of encouragement? Is Elijah going to hear something of God's new plan for going forward in this dark day. Perhaps God taking him there, he's going to be introduced to Moses part two, or let's call it plan B. Plan A doesn't seem to be working out. Is God now going to start it all over again with Elijah and give him plan B? Well, God speaks to Elijah in verse nine, and he asks him a question. What? Are you doing here, Elijah? Now, what that question means, let's think a bit about that. Is it perhaps a rebuke? Is it like, Elijah, you should not be here. What are you doing here? You should not be here. You should go back to Israel and get on with your ministry. Well, it can't be that because God brought Elijah here. God fed him. God gave him this, this special food that he's able to be sustained on that long journey. And so the question that the text is naturally bringing out is, Lord, 
Why have you brought Elijah to Horeb? Well, when he gets asked the question, Elijah answers. He tells the Lord that he has been so concerned for the Lord's glory. He he badly wants the honor and the glory that is due the Lord. And so verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, Elijah's saying, who else is there to sort this out? I'm the last one, and now I'm going to be gone. It's the end of the road, Lord. And so he's saying, Lord, I am here because I need to know what is going to happen because it looks like it's all over. And then the Lord tells him to stand on the mountain before him. And what happens? What happens at this point? It says, and behold, the Lord passed by. The Lord passed by. Does that ring another echo for you? Because you see, this also happened in Moses' time. This experience for Elijah, having the Lord pass by in this glorious way, could this be Moses' part two? Could this be plan B? Perhaps this is why the Lord has brought Elijah here. The question, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah, what do you think you are here for? Is the answer perhaps, you are here, Elijah, to see plan B, to see a whole restart? Well, it seems to be this because as God passes by, all sorts of Moses and Sinai stuff happens. You get the wind that tears rocks. You get the earthquake. You get the fire. That kind of thing happened when the people gathered under Moses that first time at Sinai. In your Bible, please turn with me to Exodus 19. I want you to see this. You see, we can't understand the Bible in its sections unless we know the whole Bible. The Bible is a commentary on itself. And when you understand the whole, then the parts make sense. So Exodus 19, I want you to look at verses 16 to 18 with me. I want you to go back to that first time at Mount Sinai with Moses. When he first gathered the people at the foot of the mountain. When they first experienced God. When he made them his special people. When he made his covenant that would then bring great blessing to the world. Because out of this people would come salvation for the whole world. It all started then. Let's go back to it. Exodus 19, verse verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. 
And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Now listen to this. This part's very important. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. But when we go back to Elijah, keep your finger there because I want to go back there, but when we go back to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, there is something different going on there. It's the same, but it's not. You see, because the text in 1 Kings 19 keeps on saying that the Lord was not in the wind and not in the earthquake and not in the fire. And yet in Exodus 19, the Lord had descended in fire. He was in it. And so this story back in Elijah, in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah, this story where it looks so similar is more about what did not happen in comparison to Moses. It's more about what did not happen than what did happen. And so in this experience, Elijah does not see things that match or supersede Sinai. This is not the great prelude to a fresh start. This is not plan B. Because three times we are told the Lord is not in the spectacular things. And then when it is all over, what happens next? Look at verse 12 in 1 Kings 19. But please keep your finger in Exodus 19. Verse 12 of 1 Kings 19. What happens next? It says, and after the fire, which the Lord was not in, after the fire, there was the sound of a low whisper. How different this is to when Moses and the people first experienced all those spectacular events at Horeb, at Sinai. After all the thunder and the shaking and the the smoke, the fire, what happened next with Moses and the people then? Go back to Exodus 19 and look at verse 19. Hopefully you'll finger, I don't know how you do fingers in devices. Maybe you've got to take some time to get there. But Exodus 19, I'm asking, what happened next after all this, this power that is displayed? Verse 19 says, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him, what does it say? In thunder. That's what happened back then. Now we've finished with Exodus 19. We can now go back to 1 Kings 19 and stay there. You see, this time, after all this This power is shown that God is not in. This time there's no voice of thunder. There is a very, very small whisper that is practically silent. It's so silent that Elijah has to come to the entrance of the cave. So, Where is God then in all of that stuff? He's not there. He's nowhere. This is not like Sinai. It is so soft, this whisper, that it's almost silent. In fact, if you look at your footnote 
in the ESV, it can be translated as a thin silence. So when Elijah gets to the mouth of the cave, he then does hear a voice and God speaks. And again, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What is all this for, Elijah? Have you got it yet? You see, now that God has given no new revelation, now that God has given no new plan to replace what was given to Moses, Elijah has his answer. He knows the answer to the question, why was he there? Why did God take him there? So that God could show him that plan A still stands. God is still working out the covenants that he started at Sinai with Moses. There's no new thing. The people indeed did have a future. And Elijah did indeed have work to continue with. The chapter ends with God telling him what he must still do. And in that, we see that Judgment is going to come on the wicked with, through the ones that are anointed. There will be a successor for Elijah. Basically, God is in charge. He is working. The plan continues. Elijah is a human. And he's wrong. He's not the only one that is left. He can't see everything. God says that he has kept a remnant of 7,000 faithful people. The point is God is fully in control. He has not walked away from his promises. The covenant is on track. And so, friends, how does this help us as we bring all this to a close? What do we do with this? Well, we, we won't always see what is going on. We are limited human beings. But the one who has made the promises, who has spoken can be trusted. Everything he's promised in Scripture will come true. He is 100% in control. I wonder how you feel in an age that is becoming more hostile to the gospel. Or how do you feel when you see moral failure among leaders in the church? It, it, it happens a lot. We, perhaps we see it a lot more because we of media. We have so much media today. How, how do you feel when you see theological failure among the leaders in the church? Many, many churches don't care about what God says in Scripture. How do you feel? Don't you say things like, when you think of the moral failure of leaders in the church, don't you, you think, Lord, the watching world laughs. People will never come to Jesus if that kind of thing is going on. Don't you say, Lord, we badly need solid leaders. We can't, have, we can't have these institutions calling themselves the church and then they, they, they're full of theological failure. We can't have that. Lord, why did you take away beyond Cato? Well, this story that we've looked at teaches us that everything is in God's good hands. The fulfillment of God's promises that's not up to the goodness of Dr. Cato. The fulfillment of God's promises, it's not up to the 
the gifts and skills of the prophet Elijah. Let me close with these words from Romans 11, verses 1 to 6. What they show us is that everything that God has promised is all of him and not of mankind. So in Romans 11, verses 1 to 6, we have Paul writing to the church in Rome where there are Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And many among the Jews struggle with the fact that the majority of their Jewish brethren reject Jesus. Jesus was always the end point of God's covenant promises. What began at Sinai ends in Jesus. He is the one who is God speaking and making people right. The Sermon on the Mount, we'll get back into Matthew. Remember we did the Sermon on the Mount? There is Jesus speaking with the people gathered at the Mount. He is the fulfillment of Sinai. In him you come to know God. And yet all these Jews, for the Roman church with a few Jews in there, they see their brethren rejecting this Jesus who's the end point of the covenant. And so Paul is asking, has God given up on his people? It just seems crazy. You you can trace the promises about Jesus all the way through the Old Testament. Why are these people not following? Why are they rejecting him? And so Paul says this, Romans 11, verses 1 to 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He always knew that out of his people, he always he had chosen and elected a people out of the Jews that would actually come to Jesus. And so Paul's saying, I'm one of them. God is, has not rejected his people. He goes on to say, do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have kept. I've done it. God is the one who makes it happen. It's not up to men. Salvation is of God. He doesn't need Young Cato. He doesn't need Craig Newell. He does use people and he uses them as he sees fit. And people come to salvation not because of what we do, but because of what God does. He is the one. And then he says in verse 5 So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. There's a remnant among the Jews. And look at what it says chosen by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, he's saying they, they, they keep thinking it's about works. It's never about works. It's never about what humans do. It's always about what God does in his supernatural power as he works salvation into people. There will be, and we've already seen it since Christ, many that have come into the kingdom. What was started at Sinai has certainly been fulfilled and is continuing to be fulfilled. Praise God for that. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that 
when we might feel utterly discouraged, that you in your word show us so wonderfully that you are faithful and we can trust you implicitly. So please would you help us when those times come, when we wonder what is going on, when we feel disillusioned, would you please remind us from this story and from other parts of the Bible that you are on track with your plan and that things will work out exactly as you have promised. Help us to remain strong in our faith, even in these times when there's increasing hostility, increasing, increasing pressure against the gospel. Heavenly Father, we pray that those who are Christians would go into this year thoroughly encouraged that they are on the right side of history because they're on the, on the side of the one who rules history. And we pray for those who do not know you, that maybe in our midst, that you would strike their hearts with your grace, that they would come to that point of being made children of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.